Singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in one of two ways. Number one is you can simply go and write a brief review on iTunes, or number two, you can just come to my website and make a donation. Today, my guest on the show will be Salim Ismail. Salim Ismail is one of the founders, former executive directors and current global ambassador at Singularity University, as well as the author of this new absolutely seminal uh, book called Org uh, Exponential Organizations. So welcome Salim. Great to be here. Fantastic. So I know your time is very, very valuable. So let's just jump right in Salim. So today we're supposed to talk into uh, about two topics, a little bit about Singularity University and a little bit more hopefully about your book, Exponential Organization. So let's start with Singularity University. It's been about four or five years since I spent the summer there. And I wanted to ask you, tell us a little bit about the changes since our previous interview and since my time at Singularity University. How has it grown? How has it changed? How many people do you guys in the team now and so on? Sure. So we're now up to about 60, 70 people on the team, uh, uh, two-thirds part-time, two-thirds full-time, one-third part-time. Uh, the first couple of years we were, you know, when we started, we didn't know whether the model would work. Could you bring together a synthesis of the top 100 scientists in the world and actually add value makes sense? The second was, can you cover so many topics in such a short time frame and really add value or are you just throwing out buzzwords? So that was the first big question. And we spent a couple of years just testing the model to see that it would work. Um, the first summer was kind of a complete, almost every day we had a feedback loop and feedback sessions to see what was working and what wasn't working. By the second and third summer, we realized the model was working. Then we kind of stabilized it and then we started adding a few more programs so that we could do more people. Uh, our summer program is still the core of it. And then we have an executive program now almost every six weeks or every two months uh, for AD CEOs, investors, government leaders. We started to do something called the Innovation Partners Program where we get 80 CEOs from Fortune 500 companies for three, four days. We do that twice a year. And now we're also doing a lot of, I take the faculty sometimes on like a traveling circus type of roadshow, and we're all traveling almost nonstop. At this point, we're doing programs. There's, we've become in Silicon Valley, if you're bringing a delegation to Silicon Valley, the kind of must stops are Facebook, Google, and now SU. Uh, yes. And so that's a nice place to be. So, uh, but we're still struggling with uh, standardizing, really scaling. We're struggling with how do you convert, convert this to an online environment. We're struggling with scaling the faculty effectively. So there's still some major challenges ahead. Yes. What are the major changes, new things and or new directions that have occurred since my time there in 2011? Probably the two biggest ones are one are we have a now a platform of about 3,000 alumni in 85 countries that is really now pro a proper platform, right? When you were there, it was a few hundred. And now we have really a solid base. Um, and we're, we have a really deep penetration into most large countries and most large organizations, which is a great place to be. Uh, the second is we've added a whole corporate uh, uh, kind of flavor to it where we're doing these programs for large organizations because they're natural sponsors and acquirers of, of some of the team projects. Mm -hmm. Plus they all need to radically transform themselves. And as a major constituency in the world, you may want to make sure you're kind of handling them and dealing with them and giving them guidance. And that's partly the where the book came from. Uh, so those are probably the two biggest areas um, uh, in terms of how we're new, any new additions to the curriculum or any new constituencies we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. 
what in your opinion would be the one thing that would surprise me the most if I were to go back to SU tomorrow? Um, compared to when you were there, <laughs> the coffee is way better, the rooms are much better. The So we've upgraded kind of little by little all of the basic aspects. The NASA cockroaches are not uh, they're, they're present not, they're anymore. Not, they're not as bad as they were. And, and we've kind of got generally everything is uplifted and it's much run as a much more tighter ship after you know, 25 executive programs that are a week long and now seven GSPs, we've kind of got a handle on it. And the process is a lot smoother, right? It was very bumpy when you were there. Mm -hmm. So that's all good. And you've got to the, the networks, the Wi-Fi to finally work. The Wi-Fi does work most of the time, but still it's Wi-Fi. And so um, <laughs> you never know. Yeah, because that was one of the major issues in GSP. Always. Yeah. Okay, so um, let me ask you uh, an audience question, throw in the mix. A sci-fi writer, Callum Chase, who met you in Barcelona recently, mm. asks if uh, you have ever considered rena renaming Singularity University as the Exponential University, because it, that it seems to him that you guys avoid the word singularity like the plague, as he says, and that you use the word exponential in almost every second sentence. Yeah. So um, you would be correct in that our thesis and our major focus is accelerating in exponential technologies. We think of the singularity, as I said in our first interview, that really hasn't changed. We think of it as the little s. We're, searing, or we're entering a world of increasingly disruptive black swans, and you really want to be able to deal with those disruptive changes. And all of our management and leadership structures around the world are set up to manage the status quo and operate in a predictable environment. And as we get into an incredibly and increasingly unpredictable environment, we need a different class of leadership. How can you manage through these discontinuities? And that's what we don't, uh, fo uh, that's where we really need to focus. And that's where we spend a lot of our time trying to understand. And how do you handle, uh, you know, Clay Christensen for the first time uh, identified a theory set around the innovator's dilemma, which has been going on for a long time, but now we have a theory, theoretical basis for disruptive innovation. And how do we kind of increase and navigate those into, at a better way than the major changes or disruptions that happen in industries? Can we smoothen out the the troughs in some of these areas? So we're looking at all of those areas in different ways. We we have as much conversation about the singularity, but we look at it again as a, as a black swan event. Mm -hmm. I joke that you could call us black swan university, right? Yeah. And so we think of it in that way. Because one of the things you often say in your presentations actually is that you're not really about the singularity and you're not really a university. Yes. So what are you then? Well, that's a good question. Well, but if you look at our mission statement, I think that says it. How can you apply accelerating technologies to solve the biggest problems in the world? The unique point in time that we live at is we can actually apply brand new technologies to these global problems. We have never been able to do that before. And so we get really, really excited because of the, and the, the driver behind that is the sheer democratization of all these technologies because everybody has access to 3D printers, drones, uh, biotech breakthroughs. They can, as individuals, take them and apply them in these areas. Uh, one of my favorite recent ones was they, these Vietnamese farmers were stuck because they could not, the, they, uh, some fuel company stopped delivering diesel to their depot. And so they're out in the middle of nowhere. They have no fuel. Uh, and they, they need boats to do all their fishing and they were stuck. And so they actually developed a solar powered boat. Um, wow. And nowhere in the previous history of humanity at the outposts of God, the back of beyond could you apply cutting edge technologies to so a problem space like that. And yes. today you can. And so that's where we get excited. Wow, that, that's really exciting indeed. Yeah. And, and just to go back to your exponential singularity thing, um, 
um, Saul Griffith, who's one of our speakers, who's, who uh, is one of our counterpoints, he kind of comes along and says, I hate all this exponential stuff, I hate the singularity stuff, next thing you know, I'll have exponential lattes, etc., etc. Um, he goes, you can't really call yourselves exponential, you really should be called sigmoidal university, because that's actually the S-shaped curve. Uh, we tried to tell him that, look, you can't call yourself sigmoidal university, nobody would ever attend. Um, and in terms of exponentials, he's actually the guy driving the curve. He's dropping the cost of robotics by orders of magnitude a year almost. And so, so we find these fascinating discussions there. But it's really important to have the counterpoint, right? To, yes. to kind of have the uh, totally different perspective that is completely opposite so you can make sure you tease out any abnormalities in the spectrum. I'll see if I can provide a, a couple of counterpoints later on during our I'm interview. I'm sure you will. <laughs> but before we get there, uh, let me ask you this. Um, we, by the way, uh, you said you, you had very good uh, input uh, after our first interview, which was done in 2011. Hmm. Uh, and I do recommend to anyone interested to go and watch it because it was a short, quick one, but we went very deep into Salim's kind of metaphysical and personal background and personal history, if you want, and I think it's very much worth watching. So I highly recommend it. But you said two very interesting things during that interview. Number one is that you're not really a singularitarian, and number two is that you're, you don't really think you're going to live forever, like Ray Kurzweil and or Peter Diamandis or Aubrey de Grey. So my I want to give you the opportunity to change your mind on any, either these or any other issue since the first interview we've done. Because yeah. four years may change a, long, a it, lot of It things. changes a lot. My views have evolved a, a fair bit since then. Uh, whether I'm going to live forever, uh, um, I'm not sure I said that I'm going to die. I think I said at the time that it's not a major focus area for me. You said it's, right? it's a lot more complex than people imagine that it would I, that be, I, it would take perhaps longer than they expect. Uh, that I do believe because as we're starting to understand some of the processes in the brain, the complexity is just way, way past what we can think. If the latest theories are correct and that we may actually have quantum phenomena in the brain, then we're done. We're going to have a very difficult time navigating, coming up with a deterministic model of how the brain operates and replicating that in any real way. Uh, and so those are areas that we need to kind of look at very carefully. Ray, of course, believes it is totally deterministic because there's physical phenomena. But so we'll see where that where that pans out. Um, on the aging side, we are actually getting closer and closer to hitting some of these, you know, escape velocity concepts, etc. Uh, the latest Ray thinks is 15 years. Other people think it's 25 to 30 years. Um, I'm now of the opinion that we will get there. Um, uh, it's not. It's an. It's a when, not an if. And the question is, when does that happen? Mm -hmm. And that I'm not sure about. And I'm not close enough to the latest techniques. Uh, there's some fascinating breakthroughs in, in CRISPR and other areas that, that give us enormous... And we keep pushing the boundaries. You know, we used to all die of uh, bacterial infections and viruses. Then we died of heart disease because we cured the first one. Now we're all suffering from neurological conditions. But literally six weeks ago, they found the cure for Alzheimer's. Uh, and really? so, yeah, That's new to me. yeah, there's a PD protein, and they found that if they can inhibit that, that uh, cures Alzheimer's. Uh, cures. Cures. Um, uh, wow, and in fact, brings me. back the memories that you thought you lost because you can clean out the brain. I have to follow up on that. That totally blows my mind. Yeah. So, uh, and now we're finding this incredible potential in the microbiome. Uh, a year ago, somebody hypothesized that maybe you could address type 2 diabetes by swapping gut bacteria. And literally a month ago, they, they announced that actually, yeah, by swapping gut bacteria, you can actually cure type 2 diabetes. They still need to ratify those results and get repetitive um, outcomes. But 
there's incredible things happening as these breakthroughs just explode. Uh, one way I've started to frame it is in the 1500s, we had the Gutenberg moment. Yes. The printing press changed everything. And it's like today we're having 20 of those at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, however, uh, we have to move on to your book because sure. time is running out. So let me ask you this. Who is your book for, first of all? So it's for two classes of people. Um, it's for the, the, the anybody interested in doing a startup. And it's for anybody in a large organization. Those are the two primary classes, which is a large broad group, which is essentially most business people. I believe that we've hit an inflection point in how we build businesses. Mm -hmm. And literally in the last five years, we've rewritten the playbook on how to build hypergrowth companies. And so if you're interested in that, in doing a startup, everybody is interested in hypergrowth, then you need to know the techniques that are being used today. Otherwise, you'll get left behind. And if you're a large organization, how do you juxtapose against this new reality? And more and more, it's becoming an existential threat. If you do not figure this out, you will be left behind and you'll get wiped out. So those are the two main constituencies that the book is aimed at targeting. Mm -hmm. And then tell us, what is Exponential Organizations really about? So maybe the core thesis of it came out about three quarters of the way through the book. And it's one of these emergent ideas. We couldn't, we didn't really realize it as we were writing it, but how most of the way through we, this kind of idea bubbled to the surface. Uh, when you're building a business, you worry about, I'll, I'll frame it in two ways. Business from the beginning of time is about selling scarcity. Right? Exactly, or and managing you, it. Or managing it, we add value to scarcity, we, we think of it as value, and then we sell it or sell access to it. Um, whether it's a hotel on a beach or, or a design team or a raw material uh, or great you know, restaurant chef. Um, little by little, as we move to an abundant world, the business models change. Right? Mm -hmm. So if you're doing film photography and, and you have you can only carry so much film around, we take courses in photography so we can optimize for every shot. When you go to digital photography and now you have a, a thousands and thousands of photographs, the business model shifts. Now the big problem is I can't find anything because I've got too many damn photographs out there. And we use bracketing and multi-exposure shots to kind of cover for any idiosyncrasies in our framing and so on. And so... The technology has driven it to abundance, and Peter is often fond of saying that technology takes something that's scarce and makes it abundant. Business models around abundance are quite different from business models around scarcity, and that's a big inflection point. So that's one overall macro dynamic that is occurring, driven by so many technologies moving at so, such a speed, and their intersections add another multiplier effect to the, to the equation. That's one part of it. The second is if you think about how we run a business, you worry about managing cost of supply and cost of demand. And you optimize around both sides of that equation. What the internet did for the first time ever, it allowed us to drop the cost of demand exponentially. Right? Mm -hmm. Online marketing, referral marketing. If you get the kind of holy grail of a viral loop, you can acquire customers at no cost. And that was the first time in business we were able to do that. That's, that was, that's an important observation. The second uh, aspect of it is what these new exponential organizations have figured out is how do you drop the cost of supply exponentially. Yes. If you look at Airbnb, the marginal cost of adding a hotel room is very low. Uh, same with Uber. If your Waze that piggybacks on your GPS for traffic information, when you join your demand and your supply, right? Yes. When you can drop the cost of demand, you take out the denominator and your market cap explodes. And so these new companies have figured out how do you enter a legacy industry with no cost of supply. And this is the existential threat for big companies then is now you have a slew of startups entering your uh, industry with no cost of supply. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin, for example, in the financial industry, what will you do? And this is the big question. 
Mm-hmm. Fantastic. So what are the sort of, tell us a little bit more then on that same line of, of thinking. What are the big questions you're addressing? So one is how do you build one? Well, the, we looked at a hundred organizations that are operating at this scale. So the metric and baseline equation that we found for an exponential organization is that it's achieving a minimum 10x performance improvement over its peers in the same space. Okay. So if you're a car company, it costs about $3 billion to design a new car model from scratch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Local Motors does it for $3 million. Like that's a thousand times performance improvement over the status quo. If you're Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, or a major CPG company, it takes about 300 days to go from new idea to, to product on a Walmart shelf for even a good product. Many, many take longer. Uh, if you're Quirky, which is a new organization in this model, it takes 29 days to go from a new idea to a Walmart shelf in an old industry, right? This is a, not a newfangled social media gaming hoo-ha thing. Mm-hmm. And now uh, Quirky is actually in a failure mode right now for a different reason. Uh, and we're looking at those as well. Um, but the sheer 10x performance improvement over the status quo is, is the kind of minimum baseline. And we've now identified 100 of those. And the question is, what are the techniques and tips and tricks and uh, structural changes they made to their businesses to achieve that? And the second part is if you're a big existing company, how do you juxtapose with that? What strategies do you do to take to ad- adapt to this new world? Yeah, so, so the first part of the book is basically exploring the exponential organization. That's right. And the second one is guided by the question, how do you build one? Yeah. So let's start by, uh, let's start digging a little deeper by, first of all, defining. Hmm. What is the exponential organization? You said 10x. Yeah. Is there more to the definition? Is that it? Um, it's, you know, we had to pick some achievable metric that we could gauge by. And the 10x seemed a good one because let's say you're doubling uh, every year or two years in your capability. Mm-hmm. Then over a two, three year period, you get to a 10x outcome, mm-hmm. right? And so that was kind of the rough uh, XY kind of framing we had for it. Um, many are doing better, like I said, local motors and so on. Uh, but 10x would seem to be a good number. Uh, and we were able we were able to defend it fairly easily. Like, like I said, a hundred organizations operating like this gives us an, enough of an experimental base uh, and a wide enough range of variety that we can tease out what are the commonalities amongst them, and and is, there's enough critical mass to do something with. So, give us a little taste of what are some of those organizations, for example. So, uh, quirky in the in the CPG space, local motors, uh, ways. Um, uh, Airbnb and Uber are kind of archetypal at this point. Uh, you have um, uh, um, uh, GitHub is our highest rated exponential organization. Um, uh, Google to some extent, Apple. Uh, these organizations that are heavily information-based, mm-hmm. leveraging heavily some of these externalities to scale. And I can get into what those are if, you, if you're interested in that. Yes, tell us a little bit about your acronym. Well, before that, perhaps we should talk about an MTP. Yeah. So what is an MTP and why is it fundamental to an exponential organization? So every exponential organization that we found has what I call a massive transformative purpose or an MTP. Like Google organized the world's information. Uh, Quirky is make invention accessible. Um, uh, Singularity go impact a billion people positively, etc. And it creates a kind of, it's an aspirational statement with a social purpose wrapped into it. It replaces the traditional mission statement, right? Uh, Coca-Cola, for example, has just taken one on. We're finding brands are morphing into this new kind of idea. Coca-Cola's new mantra is open happiness, right? Not 
sell sugar water through highly distributed vendor supply networks to add value to our ecosystem of partners, da 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 If they had something like that, most people wouldn't even know what it was. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so by having this kind of tagline, it provides and uh, creates a gravity well of interest, a community forms around it. And if you're successful, you achieve what John Hagel and John C. Lee Brown called the power of pull, where the community is literally pulling products and services from you. Uh, DIY drones has achieved that. Apple is the brand that's iconic for that. Apple's users are literally pulling products and services from the company. So every single exponential organization we found has an MTP, either at a global transformative level or at an industry level like Dollar Shave Club, which wants to just totally transform the shaving industry. Mm -hmm. So let me give you a statement. A better future, better you. Is that an MTP or no? I think it's too vague. Uh, like organizing the world's information uh, gives you a uh, something more about what you're doing. Mm -hmm. A better purpose, a better you is great, but it could apply to just about anything. And better is not kind of uh, big enough in a sense, mm -hmm. right? It's not global enough. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would look for something on a much more um, macro level uh, that everybody could get excited about. So I need a better MTP then. Do you need my, for my podcast? <laughs> Maybe. All right, and speaking of that, it's not a joke, but can, so first of all, uh, before we go into the scale of ideas, do all companies have to be exponential organizations to survive in the future? No, but um, uh, if you are not looking into this and be, knowing how to either be one or adapt to it, then you have a problem, mm -hmm. okay? So there's techniques for being a big company and adapting to it, and I can talk about that. Uh, but you have to know that that's happening because if you're not doing it, somebody else is doing it, right? So for example, if I'm a, a car, if I'm a taxi company and I'm sitting around and I don't have a strategy for how to deal with Uber, mm -hmm. uh, unless you're French, uh, 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 <laughs> then, you, then you will be wiped out because you're not operating with no cost of supply and the market efficiencies will just wipe you out because you can't handle the cost drop in that area. If you're a financial institution with a lot of legacy costs and systems based on the current financial markets and Bitcoin is coming along, then the only thing that's holding you back from the swath of startups is regulatory. Mm -hmm. right? And that's not a great long-term strategy from a, from a regulatory capture. It does not Absolutely. work long-term. Okay, so tell us about scale ideas now. Right. So uh, the umbrella of an exponential organization is the MTP. Then there's five externalities that map onto the acronym SCALE. Um, uh, so the first one is staff on demand, like Uber doesn't employ its own uh, employees uh, um, and so on, where you can literally call on people. Kaggle has 300,000 data scientists in its platform if you need those kinds of problems solved. The second is community, uh, heavy leveraging of community and crowd, uh, like uh, TED uses its community very, very heavily. Mm -hmm. Airbnb uses the crowd and their associated bedrooms to uh, create a platform. The third is algorithms. Right? Google leverages algorithms pretty heavily. Note that most of the unicorns today that are doing very well are very data-driven and algorithmically based. Uh, and they use algorithms very heavily with mass yes. data to apply to drive insights and then there's less profitability. The fourth is similar to staff on demand, leveraged assets or assets on demand. Right? Um, uh, having drops your variable cost, drops your fist cost and moves it off the balance sheet to variable cost. Uh, Uber or Airbnb would be classic examples. If you're Airbnb, you just kind of get another user and get another bedroom. If you're a Hyatt, you have to build a whole new hotel. How do you deal with that, right? And then the last one is engagement. 
use of gamification incentivizes digital feedback loops to have rapidly more awareness of what's happening in the marketplace. And then using, um, we found that gamification is really good to keep your, your community engaged. And incentivizes are really great at turning crowd into community. And so a combination of those are being used by most of these uh, exponential organizations to scale outside, right? Mm -hmm. Note that our old way was to get an asset or a workforce, put a legal or boundary around it, and sell access to scarcity. By using these five scale elements, companies can keep a very small footprint and tap into what's going around in them. The mission-critical function of Uber, which is to match driver and passenger, doesn't happen inside the organization. Right? And therefore, they can scale very effectively if they can enable that outside themselves with technology. Mm -hmm. So those are the five externalities. Then you get to the five internal control frameworks that map to the acronym ideas. And I have a great story about the acronym, by the way, if you want to hear it. Sure. Um, uh, which is the five internal mechanisms are first interfaces. Right? Uber has a, like a million drivers uh, that they need to control or passengers. Quirky has a million inventors submitting ideas. Apple has a million people submitting App Store ideas. And they use a combination of human and algorithmic capability to filter that. How do you rank, match, prioritize what you bring in? So you're dealing with abundance on the outside, and then you decide what to bring in and work on. The second is uh, dashboards, the use of real-time metrics uh, on to track the business, and OKRs, uh, objectives and key results, as an employee management technique. Google, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn all use OKRs to manage their teams. And then we found this is the best lightweight, um, decentralized way of managing teams today. Mm -hmm. The third is uh, experimentation, essentially the lean startup philosophy, right? Rapid iteration of fast market, minimum viable product, uh, business model canvas to kind of get that out and constantly iterate very quickly. When the external world is changing so fast, your internal processes need to also adapt and so constantly tweaking those, even in back office areas like legal and HR, we're finding people using the lean approach. Uh, the fourth one is autonomy, decentralized org structures. Um, gone is the top-down hierarchical structure in any of these exponential organizations. In GitHub, for example, everybody chooses what they want to do. Yes. Um, and we're seeing that more and more in play. And the use of the last one, which is social technologies, uh, Yammer, Slack is the tool du jour, notable, and so on, allow you to do horizontal communications within companies. We found that the best or the most interesting value-added communication patterns in any organization are horizontal rather than vertical. Mm -hmm. And so by allowing that in a free-filtered way using technology, you can actually get rid of the vertical structure and still keep tabs on what's going on. So what we found is a few out of these 10 attributes and scale in ideas, um, um, if you implement four out of the 10, you get the 10x performance improvement. Mm -hmm. The more you get, you get a little bit better, but four is the minimum as a heuristic around this. Okay. So that's kind of like the break point between a normal organization and an exponential organization. Yeah. Four or more of those implemented. That's right. Okay, okay. very interesting. And, so, and the quick story about the acronym. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, in one of our GSP09 students, Sarah Sklarsik. Yes, um, I know, sorry. So very, very smart, um, smarter than most of us put together. Um, uh, we were struggling with the acronym, right? Do you have on-demand assets or do you have assets on-demand? Do you use the O or the A? How do you come up with a cute acronym around this? Uh, you have on-demand workforce, workforce on-demand, staff on-demand. What letter do you use? What does it make sense? Assets on-demand versus leverage assets. I spent a day on this. Peter and I on a whiteboard spent half a day trying to brainstorm this. 
Yuri went off with his research team to try and do this for a day. I then went another two or three half days with the back and forth, probably collectively about several man weeks was spent trying to figure out what is the, an elegant way of representing this. Uh, Sarah was passing by the conference room in Building 20, and I was struggling with it. And I said, Sarah, can you pop in and look at this? And she looked at it, and for about five minutes, she goes, yeah, here. And she did it. And I was like, holy crap. Um, and then she said, "Then she said, by the way, do you have an Advil? I have a migraine. And it just killed me that, that she could come in. We've been struggling with this. The best, Some of the biggest brains in the world, and if you look at Peter and others. And, and we couldn't figure this out. And she walked in in five minutes. She just nailed it. So it was just a great story around that. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. It speaks to the caliber of our alumni, I think. Yeah, yeah. so watch out the kinds of people you can get, meet in the hallways because... That's uh, yeah. They can turn your world upside down in five minutes while they have a headache. That's right. <laughs> All right. So, um, let me ask you this: historically speaking, uh, it would appear that experts in almost any field would tend to misestimate the projected uh, uh, rates of growth. Yeah. By a factor of ten, sometimes, and yeah. we have. Famous examples from, let's say, the 1940s when people predicted that we need five, the global demand for computers was four or five yeah. or something like that. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. So increasingly, I think Vinod Kosla said it best. He said, if you're an expert in a field and you've done 10 years of research and deep analysis, then all of your operating frameworks are about the past. Right? Uh, it has nothing to do with the future. And as the future becomes more volatile, your old expertise in your frameworks, your calculating mechanisms don't apply. I'll mm -hmm. give you a very real example. I was talking to one of our alumni, GSP 13, and he just finished his master's in neuroscience. And he was really pissed off because he said, uh, I'm out of date. <laughs> Today, by the time you finish your master's, you're out of date because the field is moving so fast. And in that case, what had happened is while he was doing his master's in kind of an old way of analyzing neuroscience and interactions between neurons, computational neuroscience has come along. The field has fundamentally changed completely within 18 months to two years, and all of his techniques and approaches and research theses is essentially irrelevant, right? And so this is the fundamental reality, whereas expertise, Peter said it in a recent uh, interview, that expertise today is more and more fleeting. Mm -hmm. I can be the world's best expert at deep learning today, but in six months, I'm out of date yeah. because the field has moved on. So one of the big dis difficulties we're going to have at a structural level is how do we deal with the concept of expertise going forward? So perhaps now is the time to bring the, that kind of question to Singularity University. So is Singularity University an exponential organization? Uh, at the moment, I would say it's not. Um, and I would say what happens is, you know, you get these S-curves in, in the kind of typical exponential. So what I would say is we've kind of scaled very rapidly to where we've gotten to. Mm -hmm. We're kind of hitting the peak. Mm -hmm. And we're stabilizing and setting up the platform so we can go to the next S-curve. So that we're in the kind of intermediate period of formalizing processes, uh, making sure we can, if we uh, have, instead of doing uh, one event, we can do 10 at a time, but you need the control framework to be able to manage that. So we're kind of in an inflection point right now. So what are the things that you guys need to change to, to go to the next S-curve shift, in other words? So two, one thing we've done very, very well, and that we're very proud of is the fact that we update the curriculum so radically and in real time, right? So we've now had quite a few people repeat an executive program. And whenever we see one, we give them homework. And we say, look, now you're, you came here a year ago or six months ago. Mm -hmm. For each topic, AI, robotics, biotech, how different is this from what you saw? 
-hmm. and write down a percentage. I mean, when we aggregate the results, we're finding that the content that we're teaching changes about 20% on average every two months. Okay, that's the kind of overall average over a period of a year that we've seen. Mm -hmm. Pretty staggering. Okay? So we've managed that process, I think, incredibly well because these fields are changing so fast. The two areas where we've struggled is one is scaling the faculty. Yeah. Because it's very hard to find speakers that can articulate, can curate, uh, can, art can frame the conversation in an effective way. Um, people often say they get totally spoiled by our speakers and every other event is kind of a... <laughs> a negative thing after that, so uh, apologies for that. Uh, but how finding those is hard, and then by as we grow, having more and more of them is, is difficult. Right? Mm -hmm. I've had I've had the incredible luxury. I may be the only person who's heard kind of pretty much all of our speakers for seven years, and so I have a an ability to kind of juxtapose and see at a data level across all of them what are they going to say, how are things moving, and I see them repeatedly over time. Mm -hmm. And so I can have this fascinating insight around that. The second area, so scaling faculty is one diff very, very difficult aspect of this. The second aspect that we've ha had trouble with, how do you take this experience to an online environment, right? You've done a great job of taking the great content, putting it online, making it available to a wide audience, partly because of the rapid change. By the time we kind of grade a great video or great things around it, that video may be edited. So updating those types of curriculum are struggling. We've struggled with putting our content online. So they, mm -hmm. for two reasons, one is the updating problem. And the second is, this is not a, a Psych 101 class that lends itself to an online environment. The visceral change in how you think. All of our education, training, intuition about the world is linear, right? As Ray yeah. often says. Yeah. So it's, it's actually a biological shift. You kind of have to grok this exponential change, this, this kind of different heuristic. And yeah. it's not easily does not easily lend itself online, and we have not figured that out. Mm -hmm. To me personally, as a non-expert on exponential organizations, I would suggest uh, a few of Peter's D's, by the way, mm -hmm. which are fantastic. Uh, he talks about uh, dematerialization, democratization specifically, and demonetization. Yeah. Uh, so I would personally uh, and decentralization. Right. So I would personally say that, in my opinion, some of the ways that SU perhaps could be closer to an uh, exponential organization will be demonetization, uh, democratization, removing the sort of the closed garden and, and, and sort of uh, uh, decentralization. Because right now it would appear to me with 60 or 70 people, and you correct me if I'm wrong, it would tends to look like a classic corporation, doesn't it? Oh, um, With a sort of a vertical line top down are, and the board we, of director and well, so we use, on. We use, we have that, but we use OKRs, we use lots of other, lots of the techniques. It's, we're, what, what the, the issue is we're, we're trying to do so much, mm -hmm. there's so much happening That's true. that it's very chaotic. So when I was there, we had five people in the first year, eight people in the second year. Yeah, we were seven, you were seven or eight when I was yeah, there. I mean, it's crazy, right? Yes. To do what we were doing. 300 yes. uh, hours of lectures, labs, and workshops, 160 different speakers, all of the heuristics, food, housing for all of those people. Incredible logistics effort just with that number of people. So, uh, And right now, we may have grown by, say, 8x, but we're doing 15x more. Mm -hmm. So everybody's crazier, busier even. And the complexity of doing a lot more things is adding a lot of stress in the organization. We often get the complaint from our alumni that we send an email to somebody, we never get an answer back. And I'm one of the worst at that. Uh, Peter and Ray somehow answer all their freaking emails. I don't know how they do it. It drives me nuts. Uh, well, I think you, you're up there with them. You're not any worse in my personal experience. But 
if you're talking to other people, I think you get a different answer. But thank you. Uh, so, because let me let me uh, tell you why I'm asking these questions about SEO. You give fantastic examples in your book about Amazon and and uh, others, who basically look for what could be the thing that disrupts them. Yeah. And then they do it first instead of waiting yeah. for their competition to do it. So yeah. let me ask you this. What and or who do you think could be the disruptor to Singularity University? In other oh. words, how do you disrupt yourself so you're not yeah. disrupted yourself? Um, uh, we're kind of thinking about that right now. Uh, so I imagine you would. Well, in one way, uh, EXO in the book I've written is an, a thing off the edge. I have my own organization. I'm closely tied to SU, um, but it's my own thing. And I'm kind of doing it in my own way, independent, away from the mothership. Still have core, intact areas. A lot of the expertise, mm -hmm. thinking has come from there. But I'm off in my own thing. And I'm pulling the organization in a different direction with or without their permission. Right? So that's one example. Our alumni are now increasingly operating independently. They're running workshops. I just found it in New Zealand. Somebody just ran an EXO workshop, a paid half-day event based on the book. And I'd never even heard about it. Right? So I think that's great. I think we'll see more and more of that happening as uh, as we figure out how to push the, the core curriculum updating out to the bigger thing. The, the difficulty you have is, let's say you create a copy. I have to make sure the curriculum, the faculty, etc. are as high quality. Mm -hmm. And that's a really difficult thing to do in the visceral educational experience that we're trying to provide. Now, if I was going to disrupt SU, I would take eight and nine-year-olds and create a program for that uh, education group and that age group and go right to the source of the problem, the kids, who are the ones going to have to inherit the mess that we're leaving behind at the older generation, give them this awareness uh, in a much more... And they'll naturally take to these uh, techniques in a much more easily way because they live it already mm -hmm. and build out the them. That's mm -hmm. what I would do. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So um, what are we to do? What, what what's the moral of the story for let's say uh, companies for leaders of companies and mm -hmm. for small businesses like me for example what mm -hmm. are we to do we read your book then what oh so i've got a whole set of uh, uh, chapter 8 page 233 to no, i'm just kidding um the whole of one chapter and in fact the last third of the book is what does a large organization to do that was the big intellectual challenge for me yes. it's one thing to say here are the techniques and you can do some data analysis and see here's how many are using staff on demand or leveraged assets it's another thing to say let's create a prescriptive aspect of what your company is doing that was the more interesting part and it actually came out of our executive programs which i've run most of them 25 i think i've done now um uh, uh, where people say the, the education is great, this is the best educational week ever, 100% almost say that. The big question is, what the hell do I do on Monday when I get back to the office? Mm -hmm. And so that was the question. And from my experience at Yahoo, which is a very advanced company, but a very linear one, stuck in this uh, in this in its org structure and in a very new industry. So the the there's kind of a whole set of um, uh, techniques around. First of all, update your management and transform your management structures. Update your leadership that this new world is upon us. If they're not aware and bought in, then you're behind the eight ball. So Peter and I do almost nothing now but board workshops and CEO retreats, updating um, people. We have groups of people bringing their C-suite to Singularity around that. So updating that aspect of it. Uh, a great story that I'm not sure is in the book is the Netflix blockbuster story. Um, the CEO of Netflix, uh, uh, Hastings, went to the CEO of Blockbuster in the year 2000 and said, I'd like to partner with you. 
uh, this Blockbuster guy said, who the hell are you guys? Well, I have every family in the U.S. coming to a Blockbuster on a Friday, renting a tape or a DVD and buying popcorn. I don't need you. Five, six years later, he realizes that he's made a terrible mistake, reaches back out to try and cut a deal with Reed Hastings, and his board says, do not do it. Do not do it. Go kill them. You're bigger than they are. Um, and you cannot fight and beat an exponential curve. And two years later, Blockbuster is bankrupt. Right? And so the board, not just the, the CEO and the C-suite, have to be aware to give the board permission, the CEO permission to go do something radical. The second is maybe the most structural issue, which is don't try and take your big existing organization and transform it and turn it into an EXO. Mm -hmm. It's too hard. It's very political. It takes a ton of time. It costs a ton of money. And you risk throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. right? There's a special chemistry that got you successful. You don't want to lose that. Leave the existing organization do incremental changes to it, add community, add algorithms, etc. Mm -hmm. Take disruptive change agents inside your organization to the edge and have them build an EXO off the edge. Become a platform. Yeah. Okay? So um, Apple is the master of doing this. Apple's built the most successful company in the world. I would argue, yeah, they have a great design team and they have a great technology supply chain. Their real innovation is an organization. What they do, unlike any other company in the world, is they take a small disruptive team, keep it totally stealth, they take it to the edge of the organization, point it outwards, and they say, go attack another industry. And so they started with what music and then phones and then tablets, and now watches, healthcare, cars, payments. There's no limit to their market cap. They'll mm -hmm. just keep knocking over industry after industry. And if you look at any big company, insurance, automotive, supply chain, you have so many insights into adjacent industries that that's the way to go. So our strong suggestion is keep the existing status quo and build the exos off the edge. Become a platform where people are building off you. The big companies that in the past that have failed to become platforms, Yahoo, BlackBerry, Nokia, all pretty much dead. The ones that succeeded, Apple, Google, Facebook, thriving incredibly. And so that's a key heuristic around this. Fantastic. So Apple is the most exponential organization in the world? And from a big company perspective, they're achieving the best, best results. The the mo from a secure, we have a diagnostic score in mm -hmm. the thing. In big companies, if we actually rank the Fortune 100, uh, the number one is actually Google. Uh, they actually have the most of the techniques wired into themselves. This alphabet idea, and the reason is simply an extension of that. If you get too big, break it up and just keep individual companies operating mm -hmm. in, in each. Richard Branson at Virgin has done this the best. Each, each instantiation of the Virgin brand is an individual company. The minute it gets too big, they spin off another one. Right? And so uh, that gives you the most flexibility, and today gives you the most scale. We may be ending the era of the large corporation. I think it actually could be the dinosaur kind of thing. The comet of information has hit, uh, and it may be that smaller furry creatures are kind of going to dominate the next wave or age of organizational design. So the vilified multinationals may be actually going extinct? Or there's is that a little different? No, I think they, they certainly could. And there, there's three levels of this. Okay, One is if you're an information-based business, like LinkedIn, Google, Facebook, but healthcare is increasingly digitized, financial services, uh, insurance, um, mm -hmm. are increasingly digital environments. Right, mm -hmm. A financial institution used to move money, and now it just moves information. Right. So they're one layer. The next layer is industries or layers that are have a physical component, but the revenues are mostly information-based, like Kindle. Yeah. Uh, I buy the physical product or iPhone, 
but the App Store revenue or the Kindle book revenue is all digital. The third, that's harder to disrupt because of the physicality to some extent. The third level is the most difficult to disrupt, which are very physical industries, construction, mining, oil and gas, uh, etc. Just because of the sheer physicality of having to put up a skyscraper. The, there, this is where the tricky aspect comes in. The, the, uh, the physical industries can be the most linear organizations because if you're pulling oil, you're doing the same thing again and again. You don't need a lot of adaptability in your org structure, right? But increasingly with something like solar coming along, you'd better figure out how to adapt to that and your org structure needs to adapt to that. So even in very physicalized, undisruptable industries that we might think of in the past, we think you have to be really careful today. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the implications because it strikes me that the implications will be so earth-shattering mm. that they're not going to impact on businesses and leaders only, but on everything we can think of. Yes. Right? So tell me a little bit about that. For example, one of the things that I'm always curious about is we often meet people in Silicon Valley and Singularity University and, and elsewhere who are so excited about how everything around us is going to transform technologically, etc. And yet, so few of us actually consider the implications uh, in terms of changing le our legal system, our ethics, our political system, uh, our personal identity, if you will, our economic system, uh, democracy, everything. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. Well, I, you know, if, if you've heard any of my talks, there's one thing I say almost every single time is that if you look at the, the aggregate of all of these technologies moving so fast and the explosion of innovation that's going to result from that, the 20 Gutenberg moments, if you will, um, uh, literally every mechanism by which we run the world, uh, our legal systems, healthcare, education, intellectual property, religion, um, you name it, all designed for a world a few hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. Not for today. Mm -hmm. Not for this tidal wave of disruptive digitization that's coming along in every domain. Um, with things like the Tricorder X Prize, healthcare is becoming digital. With things like solar energy, energy is becoming digital. With things like Soylent, food is becoming digital. Can politics go digital? Can law go digital? Can you know, governance go digital? It, it, it can. It can, but it's been traditionally so human-centric that that becomes the hardest thing to change because human beings don't like to change fundamentally, mm -hmm. right? So what you have to do is essentially automate some of those processes. For example, there's no reason why you couldn't have a machine learning AI read all of the policy thinkers in the U.S. and come up with what should the privacy policy be. Right? It would be very doable. Um, if you read all well, the... What if they're incompatible, as they probably are? Just look at the democracy. That's an issue not with what the will of the people. That's an incompatibility with our ability to implement the will of the people, right? I often make the statement provocatively that democracy... So we had half a, 10 years ago, half a billion internet-connected devices. We're up to about 12 billion today, 50 billion conservatively by the end of the decade, and trillion shortly after. So we're going from 12 billion to a trillion Mm -hmm. interconnected devices in the next 10 to 15 years. We think we're 30, 40 years into the information revolution. On that metric, we're like 1%. Like we're just starting. Yeah. So we've got this incredible disruption coming ahead. 99% is actually ahead of us. Um, democracy is not compatible with a trillion sensors out in the world. Exactly. Right? And so we actually need to figure out what does a post-democratic future look like. And we don't know. Because, you know, as Winston Churchill said, 
democracy is the best form, of, worst form of government, except for everything else. Yeah. And so we now have to figure that out and use AI and other techniques in some effective way to do this. And we're starting to see hints of this. We're starting to see. Uh, we looked at this. Uh, there's a whole chapter that didn't make it into the book on exponential government, right? uh, and we touch on it a little bit in the epilogue. The UK yes. government has created a division called the Government Digital Services that actually uses design thinking and human-centered mm-hmm. approach to create products and services, actually talk to the people who would have thunk. Um, and they got 94% approval for their last passport application. And nobody's ever heard of a government um, exercise getting that kind of an approval. So we're seeing some great results and the awesome possibilities. A, a couple of years ago, I was asked to give a talk at the Republican Party National Leadership Conference, and they asked me, what would the title of your talk be? And my title was going to be, how would you drop the cost of government 10x within 10 years? And you could actually do it pretty easily, but you'd have to adopt technology, and that's where there was a bit of a problem. Some folks would end up losing their jobs, I imagine, though. Well, now, this is the bigger issue, right? So right. We, we, the, how do you, the, the, we run up against that first question mark, what do people, what would we do with all the people? And I'm in the market and recent camp here, very firmly. We've seen that we can, when we can measure automation, Employment actually increases, does not drop. We've seen that in Germany, where we've automated all the factories, but the employment hasn't increased radically. In fact, it's dropped. Right? Uh, it becomes a retraining issue, not a job loss issue. Mm. Right? So that's the bigger thing. That's the other thing. That makes it a little bit better. So you think technological unemployment is a red herring? Yes. Mm. Okay, that's one issue that we, we disagree upon. Yeah. And we... I didn't say it would be uh, uncomfortable. I didn't say it would be un- wouldn't be uncomfortable. Right. We have already the first autonomous truck operating in Las Vegas, in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Um, when you have the number one job occupation, occupation in the middle chunk of the U.S. states, the truck, truck driver. Yeah. And so you automate 10, 12, 15 million jobs. That's a big, big problem from a societal structure. But people are doing those jobs not because they want to, because they have to. Most people are doing those jobs because they, they have to do it. And that's one of the nice things about technology is you automate that. It forces people up the value chain. They're forced to use their minds and their brains more. And then I, I go back straight back to the retraining issue mm-hmm. rather than the other one. Well, the problem with retraining for me is that, number one, is you ought to know what to retrain people for. And most of the time you don't. Things kind of appear. Today, more and more, this is the issue with our education system. It's set up to train people for specific jobs. We don't know what a job looks like in five years. What do we do? So how do you retrain people in that context? And then the other problem is the accelerating pace. Do you have time to train? You gave the example of the neuroscientist friend. Well, retraining for job is exactly the same thing. By the time you retrain people for those new jobs, maybe they're gone and there's new jobs. Yeah. So maybe you'd not be able to retrain them in time for them to utilize those jobs, which would disappear in the meantime. Yeah. So I think what will happen is we'll, we'll get rid of the concept of a job. Okay. So, That's more likely. Yeah. yeah. So what will happen is we'll, we'll transform the, from the concept of a job to a concept of an occupation. Right. There's two drivers around that. One is the volatility of the workforce and the liquidity around what we're doing as people. The second is we're automating society so rapidly and technology is providing so much wealth and productivity, we so may not need to work for a living. Mm-hmm. Right, and Jeremy Rifkin talks about this. And, and actually, uh, our conclusion that came out of the book surfaced almost exactly the same time as he published uh, the zero marginal cost society yeah the the uh, an exponential organization operates on a zero marginal cost basis absolutely right? and so it was fascinating to see the emergent uh, ideas coming out at the same time he documented it more clearly 
annoyingly than we could. Speaking um, of, of Jeremy Rifkin, by the way, I did a one hour and a half interview with him at the Royal York Hotel, and he said it's the best one he's ever done. Yeah. It was right after his book came out, and we are working on a second follow-up interview. But one of the things that I want to bring is that he was talking about the decline of capitalism. Yes. Do you see that? Yes, I do. I think it's, I think it's going to happen. Not quite as dramatically as people think. Uh, mm -hmm. But I think it's going to uh, the emphasis that we put on capitalism as a society today will shift. Okay, for a couple of reasons. One is as technology delivers more productivity, money becomes less important. Mm -hmm. okay? um, so, for example, when I'm uh, I can get Google for free and eBay for free, etc. The concept of money doesn't enter the equation. I'm selling my data. I'm not selling money to get those services, right? And we're shifting the modality of our engagement within society from a concept of money to a concept of integration. Uh, so I used to use, money gave us liquidity and it liquidated power. Mm -hmm. uh, today, uh, we use money as a form of exchange and a store of value. Increasingly, we're using information directly as an inf a store of information, a store of value. You then have less dependency on money. Most startups today are more interested in collecting information about their users than collecting money. Because if they collect lots of information, they'll get insights that will later allow them to extract money out of their users using a subscription or advertising model. And so we're going to see an increasing shift towards information as the main mode of discourse in the world. And we think, I think that'll actually have a much better kind of structure in the world. When you have new companies that are operating from a an MTP perspective, they're thinking about how do you fix societal issues. Right? Absolutely. And one of Peter's magical observations and us at Singularity is that the biggest problems in the world are the biggest marketplaces. And so little by little, we'll shift the concept of capitalism to problem solving and reducing suffering, apply monetary value to some of that, carbon extraction, for example, mm -hmm. and kind of figure some of these issues out. So we, and when I look at the younger generation of entrepreneurs, profoundly excited by the way they think. You look at Rob Reinhardt, right? Creates Soylent, uh, and he open sources it. Unbelievable, right? Yeah. Fifteen hundred already, fifteen hundred copies of his recipe out in the world. Um, and when you ask him, aren't you? Elon Musk did the same with the Elon, Tesla papers. Elon Musk did the same. This younger right. generation is operating on these MTP principles, and they're refusing to be sold out, like the WhatsApp guys or whoever. They're operating on the. They don't want to be bought up by a big company. They want to go make a big difference in the world. So we're we're very excited about that dynamic in the world. I'm very excited too, but unfortunately, I'm also excited because you have a train to catch, so we have very limited time, so we have to bring our interview to a close. Sure. Let me ask you, what's the best place for people to follow you and your work? So my Twitter handle is Salim Esmail. Um, ExponentialOrgs.com is uh, our main um, um, kind of handle that we're using to track what's happening with exponential organizations, uh, and also Singularity University. With all of the, and your weblog, uh, but your viewers already know that, so that's not a great answer. Thanks very much. No, it's it's an excellent excellent answer. But uh, last two questions: What's sure. next for Salim Ismail? So I'm doing two things. I'm building a kind of a platform out of the book to say, okay, how do, can we propagate the concepts and make it easy for anybody to take some of these ideas and implement them into their companies? And so mm -hmm. I want to create a mechanism for that. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing I'm doing is looking at creating kind of an institute or some f model to take some of the output of singularity and implement it in the society. Mm -hmm. We have a big issue with companies and startups coming out of SU that are, have unbelievable yeah. ideas like Matternet, 
Then it takes them five, six, eight years to get through all of the regulatory hassle, etc. How can we remove that speed bump and accelerate that? So I'm actually working with some governments around the world. Mm-hmm. I was just spent a day with the mayor of Christchurch as they're rebuilding that city. Um, New Zealand? Uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, it's taken them seventy percent of the buildings were destroyed. It's taken them three years just to pull down the rubble. Yeah. As they're rebuilding, we're kind of suggesting them, hey, don't build the same number of car parks. Run some models and see how many autonomous cars how that might reduce the need for car parks yeah. and operate on some future basis. One of my good a friends, crisis is a terrible thing to waste. There's that. One of my good friends, Sonal Shah, made the point that most policy in the world is determined defensively and reactively. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking about creating a mechanism that we can help governments create policy on a forward-looking basis. Mm-hmm. And last question. What's the one thing that you'd like us to take away from this conversation with you? Um, we're incredibly excited about the fact that we're shifting the world into this new place. I think the the lack of awareness of the scale of this gives us huge concern. That the dialogue that you're having with your viewers and with your interviewees is not happening enough at, at a global level. Every single country in the world and every single government in the world should be discussing these concepts, not a, often in an isolated way. And and this is going to be the bigger challenge. That's the biggest concern we have. Salim Ismail, thank you very much for being with us. It's great to be here. Singularity.